Hi there, Malika Bilal here. Just a heads up that I'm handing over the mic to a guest host today, my Al Jazeera colleague, Patricia Sabga. She'll be guiding us through a story that's very much in her wheelhouse and very much on everyone's minds. Patricia and her team cover the global economy, and it's been in turmoil for weeks now. So we're going to start with one of her coworkers, and then Patricia will take it from there. I'll be back next week. Do I want to be in debt for the next 30 years? If it's manageable debt, sure, why not? But now that the coronavirus has hit and no one knows when they're going back to work, no debt seems manageable to me. For many Americans born before 1981, Taking out a mortgage to buy a home felt like the smart thing to do. But for many millennials, the generation born in the 1980s and 90s, mortgage debt is a terrifying prospect because the economy they came of age in and the one they're facing now is the stuff of nightmares. I'm Patricia Sabga, and this is The Take. I'm guest hosting today to talk about economic meltdowns and millennials. Many economists think coronavirus lockdowns are pushing the world into its worst downturn since the Great Depression. In the United States alone, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. But this is not the first time millennials have had their economic lives radically disrupted. On September 15, 2008, Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest investment bank in the world, declared bankruptcy sparking chaos in the financial markets and nearly bringing down the global economy. 2.6 million jobs were cut from the economy last year. That's the greatest decline since 1945. If we measure how the economy is doing on the basis of employment, it's doing about as poorly as you can imagine. The Great Recession and the 2008 financial crisis unfolded just as millennials were starting to make their own way in the world. As managing business editor of AlJazeera.com, I wanted to know how this generation coped back then and how they're coping now. And I knew the perfect journalist for this assignment. Radmila Suleimanova. She's a senior business producer with Al Jazeera. But she and I didn't start out as colleagues. I interviewed Radmila back in 2014 for a story on millennials who were still struggling after having graduated into an economic downturn. Radmila, I know this is a story that hits home for you in so many mm. ways. So I really want to start with your disruption. Tell me where you were back in 2008, 2009. What was going on in your professional and your financial life? 2008, 2009, I was finishing up my master's degree at New York University. I was studying global affairs. And at that time, I remember there was a lot of panic among my classmates as we were approaching graduation about how we're all going to go out into the workplace and find jobs. For me to be able to go to a private university like NYU, I made the decision upon getting accepted that I would take out a lot of student debt. And when I graduated, I remember having to move back home to Queens to live with my mom because, you know, I couldn't 
support myself just working a restaurant job any longer. And my student loan debt was really, really, I felt like crushing me. And I've been multiplying my bills. So I really had no choice but like many other millennials to move back home and reassess the situation. And it did set me back a few years. So you were disrupted. Your career was disrupted. I want to talk about the story that you reported recently for aljazeera.com. I have it here, and the headline really just says it all. For millennials, coronavirus economic blow awakens bad memories. Did it awaken your bad memories? Patty, I have to tell you, it really did, because, I mean, it has just been 20 years of a roller coaster, really. We graduated. Well, let me just speak from a personal note. My second day of college was September 11th, 2001. The trauma that a young college student experiences just seeing that was enormous. And my graduation from grad school was straight into the Great Recession. And now, you know, the last 10 years have been a decade of underemployment. And now with the coronavirus, as millennials approach their 40s, I'm just afraid that we're not going to have the space, the time, the resources, the jobs to recover from this ever. Redmilla is not the only millennial worried about the future. As part of her story, she interviewed 32-year-old Emily Reddix, who manages a clothing boutique in Manhattan. Well, Emily, like many other uh, millennials who have been so attracted to the promise of the big city, moved to New York right after graduating college. And she wanted to work in fashion design, a very booming industry. But when the Great Recession hit, that industry was particularly hit hard as well. And after the 2008 crisis, I was just coming out of college and it was very difficult to find a job. And she told me that the only jobs that were available, and I really use the word jobs loosely, were unpaid unpaid internships, and that wasn't a route I could take. I needed to make money so I could pay rent and have food. So I definitely didn't, didn't plan to go the retail route. I'm happy with how it turned out. It just, it took a while, and it was definitely a struggle finding a job back in 2009. And that was Emily's journey. And she really, really excels. I mean, I've seen her in action. And it would be really unfortunate if, you know, these small businesses where people really build close relationships and depend so much on their livelihoods never reopen again. Is she worried that it won't reopen again? She's really worried. I think a lot of businesses are are going to struggle. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these small mom and pops are probably going to close. And She's really worried. And I mean, we have these tough conversations, but she stays really positive. She's just trying to see what she can do to keep the business running. But yes, of course, she is really, really worried. I think it's going to take us a while to recover. I am very worried going forward, not only for my store since we are a small business but for all of all of the small businesses because right now it doesn't really seem like there is an an end in sight you talk about emily and she's trying so hard to stay positive but the knocks that this woman has suffered 
they're not unique. Many millennials are experiencing the same thing. And when a majority of a generation is hit with this kind of financial setback, not once but twice now, it can dramatically influence the trajectory of their lives and even their relationship with money. So give me a sense of of how millennials stack up against previous generations, especially on those major milestones. Well, we're behind the boomer generation and Gen X as well. So uh, millennials are postponing really important life milestones like home ownership, like getting married and having children. And a lot of those decisions are based on the economic hardships of the last decade. Like I mentioned in the article with Emily, you have people who are educated, who have college degrees, who graduated with mountains of student loan debt and no jobs to walk into, no jobs to build their life. Buying a house is extremely expensive. Having children is extremely expensive. And getting married also has a lot of costs that it comes with. So this is really how we're thinking about things, which is, I think, quite unusual compared to other generations. Redmilla is right. Her generation is more risk-averse than previous ones. To find out why, we talked to Camille Busset. She's a senior fellow in the Economic Studies Department at the Brookings Institution. Camille confirmed what Redmilla had told us, that millennials struggle to find jobs in the wake of the Great Recession. That was the first financial strike against them. And then... Number two, if they were able to find jobs, they tended to be jobs for which they had more credentials than really necessary. And they also tended to be jobs that did not have benefits. So typically, in a normal economy, they might have been in a job that had retirement benefits, for instance, or health benefits. But a lot of them didn't have those kinds of jobs. So they are probably about 10 years behind in terms of saving for retirement. Their savings rates are lower than other generations at the same age, basically. And as a result, their investments are also lower. Consider this. Millennials are likely to take longer to move out of their parents' house than previous generations did. And like Camille said, it's been tough for millennials to save money, let alone invest it in assets that grow in value over time. As a result, they're less wealthy than older generations were at the same age. Part of that is down to student loan debt. Overall, millennials tend to have higher student debt than generations prior to them. And the reason for that is that they went to college at a time when tuition really, really shot up. And the loan structure also changed so that they tended to have more loans than grants. As a result of that, their student loan debt tends to be higher because they were paying overall a lot more for an education than might have been the case in prior generations. And yet, millennials have been accused of being lazy and entitled, even though they've faced obstacles their parents never did. You know, I do think this is a generation which is probably, when we look back in about 20 years, is probably the generation with the greatest amount of downward mobility, which is unfortunate. And very counter to the American narrative of continuous upward mobility. 
Now, with the coronavirus pandemic, it's not clear when or even if things will get better. But data suggests the economic fallout is hitting younger generations the hardest. A survey conducted in early April by think tank Data for Progress is a case in point. It found that more than half of Americans under the age of 45 had either lost their job, been put on leave, or had their hours cut since lockdowns began. So they're going to have to really focus on the basics. You know, how do we get food on the table? How do we make sure there's a roof over our heads, et cetera? And the longer the coronavirus pandemic continues here in the U.S., the less likely they are to be able to bounce back extremely quickly from an employment perspective. So that is very, very bleak. It is bleak. And there's a lot of uncertainty ahead. I think it's going to be incumbent upon the federal government in particular to think about how to rebuild this economy and how to make sure that people who are in their 40s, which is, you know, they still have 30 years of work time left, going to make sure that those people are put on a path to success. The U.S. government has stepped up with trillions of dollars in coronavirus relief measures like enhanced unemployment benefits and low-interest loans to help businesses. The government is even sending checks to people to help cushion the blow from lockdowns. But is it enough? After her story was published, Radmilla checked back in with the people she interviewed to see if the federal government's financial lifeline had reached them yet. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but a lot of the people I spoke with for the article have received zilch from the government. They're waiting for their checks, and it's been over a month. So I I am baffled to think that people are left out on their own, forced to shut down their businesses, forced to stay home and not go to work without any sort of lifeline from the government. I mean, really, how are people supposed to feed themselves, pay rent, pay bills, pay their credit card bills? How are they supposed to do it? Excellent questions. So we asked Camille how she would tackle the problem. The way Camille sees it, the country needs a multi-phase plan of action. That would be, one, that there are monthly payments to every American who earns less than 100000 per annum. That would allow people to actually spend money so you could create consumer demand that way. That is crucial because consumer spending accounts for roughly two-thirds of U.S. economic growth. Number two, there would have to be another round of loans and supports, but for a larger, broader array of industries. The point is to ensure that businesses, great and small, get through the crisis so they can kick back into action once the pandemic starts to ebb. The third um, element would have to be a very high priority placed on making sure everybody has health care. And so that will be very expensive. And the final piece of the picture would be that we would have to start constructing housing so that people who are infected can stay away from one another. And that will be particularly true for large cities and lower income areas. Because if we don't plug these gaping holes in the social safety net, a second wave of infections could take hold, triggering more lockdowns and another economic downturn. So I think that's kind of where we would need to be in order to be on the two-year trajectory, which is, you know, at the end of two years, uh, we would start to regain significant momentum in the economy. Anything short of that, 
I think we're risking, you know, not getting back to where we were for another three to four years. Unfortunately, Camille thinks it's more likely we're looking at a longer road to recovery, which is why she also wants to see other measures that could be game changers for struggling Americans and the economy as a whole. Starting with... It's going to be important for the federal government to basically forgive student loans, period, whatever their origin, whether they're, you know, from a for-profit university or from the government or they're from a bank. Next, they're going to have to figure out how to deal with mortgages that haven't been paid during the crisis and have to do that in a pretty creative way. And it bears repeating. They're also going to have to figure out how we can better provide health care to everyone. So I think there are a lot of options on the table. We will be spending, we meaning the U.S. government, will be spending a lot of money to get out of this very, very dark hole. And I would not be surprised if, you know, by the end of 2023, we have spent something like 12 to $14 trillion. For many people, and not just millennials, the scariest part of this economic crisis is how suddenly it struck and how vast the damage has already been. The tough measures, both on banning social contacts, but also shutting shops, restaurants, businesses, has had a catastrophic impact on the economy. The price of American oil has dropped below zero for the first time in history. It means producers are paying buyers to take supplies off their hands. The head of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, says the global economy has come to a standstill. This, it says, is the worst crisis it had ever witnessed. But despite that economic carnage, most of the people Brad Miller spoke to said they support the lockdowns, even if it means they'll be out of work for longer. And Emily has even said, I don't want us to reopen to then have to close again. So let's deal with this problem now, once and for all, so that we can just get rid of coronavirus and we don't have to do this again in the fall or the winter. Because then that would be even worse than having to close for a month or two or three now. Last week, after The Take spoke with Emily, she sent this postscript, and we'd like to end on it. Because perhaps one of the greatest strengths of this generation disrupted is that many millennials don't just want an economy that works for them alone. They want an economy that works for all of us. I had one more thought. I was talking to some friends last night. We did a little Zoom chat. And I do think a lot of people are, um, they understand, you know, the economy is being hit really hard and they, everyone is feeling for these small businesses. And I, I know a lot of my friends and, and clients at my store want to do what they can to support businesses right now. So I do feel like when this is over, I think a lot of people are going to do what they can to help these smaller businesses bounce back and and go out there and and hopefully eat at their favorite restaurant or shop at their favorite store. And so I I do, I like that sense of um, everyone's kind of trying to come together and, and help out. So I hope we see a lot of that happening when things open back up. And that's The Take. 
This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Amy Walters, Dina Kisbe, Alexandra Locke, and Ney Alvarez. Alex Roldan designs the take sound. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the take's executive producer. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And I'm Patricia Sobga with aljazeera.com. Visit us there to see all of our business and economics reporting. We've got journalists all over the world covering the coronavirus and also stories you might be missing because of the coronavirus. Malika Bilal will be back with The Take next week.